Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our teacher, Lee Eric Fesco, is using this series to take a look at some of the parables of Christ. We hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, as some of you know, my family and I, we are at Disney uh, this week. Uh, there is a comedian whose name is Jim Gaffigan, describes Dis- the Disney experience as such. If you want to know what it's like to go to Disney, just imagine yourself standing in line at the DMV, and that's it. That's it. That's it. I want you to know that that is a very accurate uh, description. As many efforts as I've tried to, to make uh, to diminish the line waiting experience, if you go to Disney, it's unavoidable. You will wait in line. You're going to wait in line. Uh, for the better part of the week, you'll be waiting in line. But as I said, they've made efforts to diminish that, that line waiting experience. And one way they've tried to address this is through the fast pass method, it's called. Fast pass. Uh, if you don't know about the fast, ma- pa- fast pass method before you go to Disney, you're in for a rude awakening, okay? Because here's how you'll discover what the fast pass is. You'll approach the attraction for the, the, uh, uh, the line for the attraction that you want to ride, and then you'll see that the wait is, in many cases, as much as 150 minutes. Now, for those of you doing some quick math, it's two and a half hours, Okay. They uh, post it right at the front of the line. Here's how much of your life you're going to give up to trade for 90 seconds. 90 seconds of a thrill ride. And listen, that wasn't the worst of it. There was one ride at Universal that we uh, went to where the wait was 240 minutes. 240 minutes. That is four hours. Four hours of your life to... We we didn't ride that ride. Now, uh, so um, this is, uh, so there's the fast pass, uh, explaining that. This is the fast... If you have a fast pass, you get to bypass all those other suckers standing in line uh, for the 90-minute wait or, or beyond and get all the way up near the front. You know, you just have to wait in about a 10 to 20-minute line instead of the, the 90 or 120-minute line or, or whatever to, to get all the way up to the front. It's only about a 10, 20-minute wait. Now, the first time you see this happening, the first time you see someone go by you in this, this line that runs parallel to the one that you're at, and all of a sudden they're going to the front of the line, your immediate reaction is, hey, that's not fair. <laughs> That's not, this, this, uh, this isn't my kid saying this. This is me saying this. That's not fair. Uh, uh, my kid said not, it's not fair about a million other times uh, this week for other things. But in this particular occasion, it was me saying, That's not fair. Why do they get to go all the way to the front of the line? Well, you have to plan your trip to the park ahead of time. And if you download the app, which we did not know about, you have to download the app ahead of time. You can reserve up to three attractions in advance where essentially you're setting up an appointment to wait uh, in line to, to, to ride that, that, uh, that attraction. It didn't work this way the last time we went to The last time we went to Disney, you got your fast pass at the actual ride and you came back later. Well, now you have to do it all in advance through the app and, and, uh, and that, that's how you did it. Well, it didn't take us long to get up to speed. So, okay, well, we better get on this really quick and reserve all the the things that we want to ride for the rest of the week. And let me tell you something. When you do get your fast pass and you're the one that gets to go in the fast pass lane bypassing everyone else, you feel a little bit better than everyone else. (laughs) You kind of feel, you know, superior to all the other plebeians that are just standing in line as you kind of jet past them. Maybe you should have planned your week a little bit better as 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 you go past them. Uh, you see, as Jean LaRue uh, mentioned last week, for those of you that are here, if he did a fantastic job, we live in a world that demands fairness, right? We live in a world that demands fairness. We, we insist upon fairness. If, if we're the ones getting the shorter end of the stick, uh, well, then we insist upon fairness. If we're on the winning side of things, well, somehow we deserve it. You know, we, we kind of say we deserve it. We, we did something right, and that's why we're saying it's not fair, okay? Now, let me ask you this. 
Do we believe in a God of fairness? Do we believe in a God of fairness? Okay, or let me put it to you this way. Does God treat us fairly? Does God treat us fairly? You say no, right? No, he does not. He does not treat us fairly. If God gave us what was fair, what would we get? If God gave us fairness, we would all perish. Kelly, your seats are up here. We've reserved them. Hey, and I've invited everyone out to the... To the, uh, to the ceremony ladies. I hope that's okay. I invited to everyone right out here. Okay, so uh, if he gave us what was fair, we would all perish. Or how about this? Do, do we serve a God of sameness? Does God give us all everything the same in equal amounts and proportions? No, no, he doesn't. Not on this side of heaven anyway. We serve, we serve a God of grace. We serve a God of grace. Can someone remind me what grace is. What's a working definition of what grace is? What is grace? Unmerited favor. Those are the very words that I had written on the end sheets of my Bible growing up as a child because my mom would quiz me sometimes in our devotional, what is grace? And I would always forget. And so I wrote it on the end sheet, unmerited favor. Guess what? I didn't know what unmerited favor meant either, <laughs> but I knew that was the right answer. What is unmerited favor? It means simply you're receiving favor. You're specifically receiving God's favor for something that you didn't earn, unmerited. You didn't earn it, okay? Uh, that's when you receive something, you receive God's favor, and you, and you haven't earned it. We serve a God who looks at us in our sinful state. Uh, remember, if we got what was fair, we would all perish. He looks at us in our sinful state, and he says, you know what? Even though you don't deserve it, even though you haven't earned it, I'm going to grant you favor. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus, okay? He applies his righteousness to us. You know, that's, that's, that's the God that we serve, okay? God of grace. Now, I say all of that to bring us to our parable for today. Some of you might remember this. We only studied this a couple years ago in our survey of the New Testament, so it might be a review for some of you. But what I want to do is I want to read through it once, and then we're going to circle back to our understanding of, of who God is. And, uh, and see if there's any disconnect, okay, with the, the, the parable we're about to read and our understanding that God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace, okay? The parable is known as the parable of the talents, and you can find it in Matthew 25. And uh, you can turn there, um, or you can follow along with us up here. We're looking at Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. This is Matthew 25, 14 to 30, and it goes like this. For it will be like a man going away on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after... A time, uh, excuse me, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you've delivered me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He would also receive the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, 
have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown and you gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. Okay, here comes the payoff. Ready? Here comes the payoff. This is Jesus' summary of the parable he just told. Ready? Here goes. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, there's our parable. Now what I want you to consider for a moment is how this parable meshes with the God that we know, the God of grace. We just confess to serve and we serve a God of grace, right? We serve a God who dispenses unmerited favor, right? Isn't that what we just said? Yeah? Okay. We just said that. God gives us what we don't deserve, and further, He withholds what we do deserve. What we do deserve is eternal punishment, and He withholds that. It's mercy, and He gives us instead that which we do not deserve, right? We all agree to that. Now, one more time. Verses 29 and 30, it reads, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, gosh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But to me, when I read that, I don't feel like this is a God reflective of one of grace and mercy. What it sounds like is God is really pleased with the guys who worked, did a good job, and they got rewarded. And, and the one that hid his talent, well, I might even have a little empathy for this guy, right? Uh, it sounds to me like he even did something that was halfway smart, and he tucked it away so that at least he didn't lose it. I, I, I mean, was what that guy did so bad? In fact, I may even identify with the guy more than identify with the overachievers. Does that mean I'm going to be cast into the place where there'll be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth? You know, this was my understanding of this parable for most of my life. I read this parable and that was my understanding most of my life. I grew up understanding this parable to mean if I don't use my gifts that God has given me, He's going to take them away from me and then punish me too. Okay? So I better keep practicing the piano. I better keep doing well. I'm terrible at piano, by the way. I better keep doing well in school, which I'm terrible at school. <laughs> I was. And I, I better be thankful and grateful for everything that I have. Otherwise, God will take it away from me and give it to someone else. Is, am I the only one that, that kind of grew up thinking that maybe, or maybe, maybe even now I read this parable and think that, well, that's, that's the understanding of this parable, right? Isn't that what this parable is teaching? That if I have something enough, I'm not using it, then God's going to take it away from me and give it to someone else and maybe even punish me in the process. You don't have to raise your hands, but it's okay if you're thinking that because, like I said, for most of my life, I thought that's what this parable meant, okay? So if that's not what the parable is saying, what is the parable saying? Well, gosh, if it is saying that, it certainly does contradict our, our understanding of who God is, okay? And, and that is a God of grace. If this parable is saying work hard to earn God's favor, well, if we're trying, if we're earning his favor, that's not grace. That's not what grace is. Remember our definition of grace. Grace is unmerited favor, all right? So if he's telling us to earn his favor here, work hard so that when I, when I return, right, then I'll be pleased with you. 
if that's what this lesson is, then, then maybe I've just misunderstood this parable for years. So what's the key to understanding this parable? What's the key to understanding this parable? If we encounter a, a passage that seems to be unclear, what do we do? How do we handle that? We find a passage that's unclear in the Bible. How do we handle that? What do we use to, to, to interpret the unclear passages of Scripture? The clear passage of, of Scripture. Use the clear passages of Scripture to interpret the unclear passages. That's the first rule of biblical interpretation. It's called hermeneutics. What would be the second rule? If there's a second rule, would you, does anyone know what that would be? Understand the genre and context. If you understand the genre and context, it's going to take you a long way if you don't understand what's going on in this parable here. And that's the key to understanding this parable right here, context. If you understand the context of this parable, then you're going to, you're going to go a long way in understanding what this parable is actually trying to get at. Okay? Context. Context. Okay. First and foremost. Yeah, we already talked about that. Uh, uh, the key to understanding is, again, context. Real quick, like, let's go through a handful of parables. We're going to go through a handful of parables here and see if we can't discern a theme in them. We're going to back up about a chapter and a half from this one. It's about a chapter and a half, and we're going to see if we can't find a consistent theme leading up to this, this parable here, okay? Let's go with this one first. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 39, which says this. Matthew 24, 36 to 39. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Do we know what Jesus is talking about here? What's he talking about? His return, his return okay? His return. The end, the end of all history. Let's keep going. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the, the, the coming of the Son of Man. So what's being said there? What's the quick moral of the story here? If you had to, to do a quick analysis, what's the quick moral of the story? He won't, you won't what? He won't see Jesus coming. He won't see him coming. He'll just show up unexpectedly by, you know, surprise. This is, this is what was happening in the days of Moa. People were just, you know, do, as saying they're just eating and marrying and, and drinking, just, do, just living everyday life. They didn't know. They weren't expecting anything at all. They were just regular, just doing what they did every day. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, in came the floods. Unexpected. Unexpected by surprise. Now let's look at the next verse, 40. Okay? Then two men will be at the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Suddenly, unexpectedly, right? They'll be gone and taken away, so be ready. Be ready. So far, so good? Understand this? So far, so good? Let's move on to the next little vignette. Okay, this is 43 and 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore... You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What's the message here? Same thing? Same thing. Unexpectedness. He's coming at an hour we don't expect, right? And isn't it odd that Jesus dares to, to, to liken his coming to the sudden unexpected coming of a thief? Now, now let's be clear. It's not that Jesus is, is like someone who steals things, right? That's not the comparison. So what's the point of the comparison Jesus is trying to make here? How does a thief behave? Does he inform you of his plans before he executes them? 
No, he does not. He shows up. Have you seen that movie, uh, Ocean's Eleven? Like the, the, the second one, the 2001 version. That, the 2001 version was a remake of, the, of a 1960 movie. But in that movie, uh, the, the main character, Danny Ocean, he pulls off this unbelievable casino heist and he steals all this money. And my, my favorite uh, line or one of my favorite lines in the movie is this Brad Pitt's character, Rusty, uh, who calls the casino owner on the phone and the owner answers the phone saying, who is this? And Rusty's response the man who's robbing you. <laughs> it was such a great line. The only reason he could reveal that because he was so far ahead of him. They were so far ahead of him that he could take that moment and say that, hey, I'm robbing you right now. And there's no way he could catch up to what was going on because it was completely and utterly unexpected, right? Completely and utterly expected. If he had any idea what was about that he was about to be robbed, what would he have done? He would have called all his casino henchmen to, to come down and stop it, right? But once again, the theme we're seeing here in this parable, not that Jesus is a thief, but that when he comes, it will be so utterly and completely unexpected. So be ready, okay? Be ready. And then we we don't have time to go through all of these, but if you look at verses uh, 45 to 51, Jesus speaks of a servant who is found doing the will of the master when he returns. And the wicked servant who is beating his fellow servants, knowing that his master's return would be delayed. What's that parable about? Same thing. When the master returns, be about the business of doing your master's work right? Don't be, don't be doing things that the master wouldn't approve of. Because why? Because the master could show up at any minute, any moment without you knowing, and, and, and you don't want to be caught off guard. And then again, if you jump over to uh, chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, this is the parable of the 10 virgins. Uh, virgins. Does anyone remember what that parable is about? Uh, it's, uh, the yeah, the lamp oil. The lamp oil. It used to be that that once again, be prepared is the, is the theme of that, that, uh, that parable. Back in the day when, when they would have these wedding processions, it wasn't like, like to, I mean, weddings would last days long back then. And so sometimes the bridegroom would, would uh, get caught up in his family's house for hours and hours on end, and people would be waiting in the streets for the procession to come through, and they'd be waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's, what they're, that's the picture that Jesus is painting here, is that these 10 virgin, virgins are there with their lamps uh, ready to go, but they ran out of oil. And so by the time the procession came down, they're out of lamp oil, and they're scrambling to get oil and they say, hey, you're out. And if you didn't have your little, your little trinket, your little uh, lamp, you, you couldn't get into the party. And so you're what? Unprepared. So what's the theme of that? Same thing. Same theme over and over again. Jesus is, is telling all these parables, repeated theme, be ready when the bridegroom come comes because he'll come unexpectedly. He'll come unexpectedly. All these little parables and vignettes are, are about the return of the master. To be prepared for his return is what he's telling us here. And all these parables and vignettes are the words that Jesus uses leading up to the parable of the talents. The very next one is the parable of the talents. That's what they're all about, every one of them. Now, how much sense would it make if Jesus is teaching us in parables for Jesus to suddenly throw in a parable there about, hey, if you don't use your gifts, I'm going to take them away from you. And I'm going to punish you too. Doesn't that seem a little bit of out of left field? Wouldn't you expect that this parable be also about his coming and his return? So ultimately, that's what this parable is about. Context tells us. Context tells us this. He's telling us a parable. This parable, first and foremost, is a parable about his return. Okay? His return. Yeah, Sean. So doesn't the message of, you know, act right because you don't know when I'm coming kind of conflict also with the not by your actions? Yes. Yes, and so we have to... We have to 
we have to we have to consider all these things because again if you're if you're only reading that parable in isolation that's what you're going to come away with wait a minute i don't understand this why is why am i understanding that god is a god of grace but yet i i see that that's the narrative of this parable this message is be good because god is coming be good because god is coming let's all be dis, let's all be dismissed if, if that's what we that's we'd be we'd be we'd be leaving here and very frustrated if that's what we if that's what we left with with that understanding that this parable seems to be teaching that if we just read that parable that's what it seems to be teaching be good do a good job because he could show up in any, any moment and if he's and if you're caught not ready well you're in trouble <laughs> you're in big trouble now let's keep going let's see if we can unlock some more of this okay now something else is very important to understand about our, our parable here one talent any, have any idea how much one talent was worth? It's an enormous amount of money. One to three years' salary, depending on... At least a year's worth of salary. One talent. Okay, so the fact that anyone got a talent is an enormous amount of money. So they all got enormous amounts of money. So the ones that got five, the one that got two, the one that got one, all an enormous amount of money. Okay, no one, everyone is entrusted with something of great value. Okay, remember that. Everyone's entrusted with something of great value. So what we read here, and, and also when you read the word servant... The more accurate translation is probably the word slave, okay? Servant seems to imply that this is a person who's, who's uh, there somewhat willingly. A slave is, is not there by choice. A slave is an indentured servant here, so he is under no, uh, he, has, he has no right to leave. Rather, he has to stay because he's a slave, okay? So the one slave here who received five talents went off to work, and the one who received two went off to work, while the one who received one talent went and dug a hole and buried it in the dirt. Then after a long time, it says in verse 19, do you see how it's now hearkening back to the other, other parables? Now after a long time, the master returns. This isn't just an isolated parable about gifts, okay? It's very much related to everything previously that we were discussing. So after a long wait, the master returns to settle accounts. And he asked the first slave, what have you done with what I have entrusted? He said, here, I've made five more. And the master's response, great. Enter into the joy of your master. Now notice the, the man that was entrusted with two talents. He comes along, he's been proportionally equal and, and, and productive. The master replies to him with the exact same words as he did the first uh, slave, no different. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful, the exact same words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, okay? Same response, same response as the one with five talents. Now what happens? The third man arrives. The man who received one talent comes along and listen to what he says, verse 24. You can see it up here. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you, do not, where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Now, again, if you're like me, you're probably going to have a little bit of empathy for this guy. Okay? The charge he levels against his master is that the master is exploitative. He's unfair. He, he uses the labor of others for his own gain while he contributes nothing, right? He's charging that the master has put him in a tight spot here. If, if, this, if this servant, assuming he's a servant or a worker, uh, if he's successful, none of the money is his. If, he, if, he's, if he's good and he gets a return on his money, it's, it's still not his money. It's still the master's money right? And if he's unsuccessful, if he's unsuccessful and he loses out and he loses the money, he bears all the burden. Doesn't that seem a bit unfair? Come on, let's be honest. 
let's get out of our church clothes here and just say, wait, let's just be in our dirty clothes and say, aren't you, aren't you a little bothered by that? Because again, it's not fair, right? It's just like the people in the fast pass lane. If, if I do something well here, you get all the money. If I do something bad, I get all the punishment. Is that fair? Am I the only one outraged by that? Seems like it. <laughs> it's just me. All right. That's not fair. So here's why you have to remember that this is really a slave. Okay. The slave does not have the right, first of all, to withdraw his services. An employee does. Okay. An employee can file a grievance with the union. An employee can quit his job. The worker has many options a slave does not have. A slave is owned. Okay. So look here. If you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, you are Christ's slave. Okay. You don't have the right to withdraw your services. You owe him your service. You are indebted to him. You owe a debt which you cannot repay. And so your task in the meantime, as we await his return, quite simply stated, is to improve his assets. Okay. Again, we're just playing off the other parables here that, that led up to this point. Be ready for his return. Be about his work. Be about his, because his return is, is imminent. It could be any, any moment now. Okay. Now the master tells the slave who buried the town, okay, so you think I'm harsh. You think I'm unfair and an irrational master. The very least you could have done was put the money in the bank and draw an interest. So you see, the fact that he didn't at least do that goes to show you that it wasn't risk that the servant was afraid of. He wasn't afraid of risk because he could get in. He could have just put it in the bank and drawn interest, right? So what's his problem? His, his problem was resentment. His problem was that he didn't like his master. He resented his master. It wasn't risk that he was afraid of. He resented his master. Do you see where he went with this? He, he did what Adam and Eve did all the way back in the garden. Hey, what's going on here? The, the response to is, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's, it's, it's not only is it not my fault, God, but it's your fault. That's what he's saying. It's your fault. We discussed this just a couple of weeks ago. It's the very same message. There are only two choices when it comes to justification. There's only two choices when it comes to either you try and justify yourself or you rely on the justification of another. Okay? And those that try to justify themselves, just like this servant is doing, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Whenever you say it's not my fault, whenever you say it's not my fault, you are trying to self-justify. Anytime you say that, it's not my fault. You're trying to self-justify. And in God's economy, when you try and self-justify, it never ends well. Okay? I, I can simplify the whole Bible for you in, in, in just one, one quick thought, just like this, okay? It's, it comes down to this. Either you try and justify yourself, either you try and justify yourself, or you rely on someone else's justification placed upon you. That's, that's it. That's what the whole Bible boils down to. Either you stand in front of God, you stand before God trying to self-justify, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. I, I, I'm, I'm getting a bad rap here. Or you rely on grace. You rely on grace and on someone else's righteousness so that you can look at someone else's record and say, that record has been applied to me and, and therefore that's my justification. That's my justification. So that's what Jesus is saying here in this parable. That's what Jesus is saying. There are two types of people. The first type are those who will try, are those that will be doing the work of the master when he returns. The other is the one who, who tries to self-justify. Okay, so which one are you? If you find yourself asking, what is it 
that I'm supposed to be doing because I'm afraid I'm going to be, I'm going to be that, that slave who is cast aside and thrown in the darkness and, and have my talent taken away. I'm afraid that's me. Let me try and set your mind at rest here, okay? At least that's my hope I can. If you are His, okay? If you are His, if you believe in Christ, do you believe in Christ? If you believe in Christ, you're His. Do you believe in Christ? Okay. Do you believe in the work that He's done on your behalf? If you do, then as we said a couple weeks ago, you are already justified right now. Right now. If you believe, what the, what the Bible calls us to do is believe. Not, not do anything in return. Not muster up some kind of self-righteousness. Not, not try and go, well, let me get my act together. No. Believe. Do you believe that Jesus stood or, or, or was on that cross paying for your justification? If you believe that, you are His and you are already justified. Okay? You won't be cast aside. You can't be cast aside if you believe that. Okay? You don't, you don't have to live in fear that you're subconsciously bearing your talent and will one day be surprised when, when He casts you away. If you believe in the work that He's done for you, then what? Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to finish what He starts. He, he will not not finish it. He, he, he must do this. It's His job. He will complete it. His assets will be doubled in you. He will see to it himself personally. He's not willing to allow you to try and bury your talent in the dirt. Listen to this. This is Peter 1, 3 to 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded God is doing this right now. Through God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, I think we all have a tendency to read this parable and fear that we might be the lazy servant. Okay? And if we don't work hard enough, we're going we're gonna to fall out of God's favor and be cast off. That couldn't be further from the truth. This parable is an indictment against your lack of work. It's an affirmation of the perfect work of Jesus Christ that, that will see you through to the end. If Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, you will grow your Father's assets because like we read in, in, in Galatians 2.20, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's not my righteousness. It's not me trying to justify myself anymore. But Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I heard a great uh, podcast the other day. Uh, I, I don't typically listen to uh, uh, Annie Downs' podcast a lot. She's a former author that I used to work with, but she has a podcast called That Sounds Fun. And she had a guy on named Chris Rice, uh, who I don't know if you know from years ago, was a musician from, from years and years ago. And I was, I was actually uh, pretty good friends with him. And I thought, oh, great, he's on the spot. So I wanted to listen to what he said. And he had this great uh, explanation of, of what the ground, because she asked him, how do you experience faith? Or how do you experience God? And he said, I, I feel like experience is the wrong word because it's like asking, how, how do you experience the ground? Do you, do you ever walk around thinking, how am I experiencing the ground today? <laughs> you don't, do you? It's there. It's there. It's what's holding you up. It's always supporting you. It's always there. And so you go about your life and, and the ground sort of dictates where you go. This is what faith is. This is what faith is, not something that you muster up, but something that you believe is there. And, and when you believe, and, and the fact that you believe that it's there, that, that, that affirms the fact that God has justified you. 
And, and that, so you will never, you will never, if you believe that, you will never be the servant who's cast aside. You will never be the one who's bearing his, his, his talent in the dirt. You will always be the one that, that double, enter into the joy of your master. That's what the parable is. Christ is at work in you. It's not up to your labor, labor that holds up the end of the bargain. It's his work that holds it all up. And he will not fail. He will not fail. You are not the lazy servant because he is not the lazy servant. Let's, let's open up for questions and see what other thoughts or comments you might have. Yeah, go ahead. There's such a good um, like revelation of the character of God in that too. To, if you remember, like the servant who struggled the most was also given the most mercy. He was given the least. To, to It wasn't that he was being treated poorly by being given the least amount of talents. He was actually, he was actually merciful. According to his abilities, he was given the smallest portion of the steward because he's so hard. Which was still a tremendous gift anyway, which was still a tremendous yeah. amount. And then where you say like a, a, a servant has no right to say, I'm not going to do your work. Mm-hmm. Equally so, a master has no obligation to say, enter into my joy. Right. And yet that's the master they were always serving. Mm-hmm. was the one who would say, I gave you what you could steward and you may enter into my joy. Uh, and it's just, I think we can get caught up in like, oh, that's not fair. If that were me, I'd, I'd get scared. And it's like, but do you see what kind of master you're serving? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's it is telling the fact that he does he gives the exact same response to the one with two talents and one with five talents. It you know it wasn't the the end result, the total sum end, but but uh, the fact that that the work was doubled as a result of of the master, not as a result of of the servant. So love it, fascinating. Someone else? Anyone else? Thoughts? Comments? Yes. Lucy. I'm sorry. I was thinking, like, as soon as you said, is God fair or does God give equally out? I mean, the story that always comes to mind is God hated Esau and loved Jacob. Jacob, I and love Esau. You go back to the concept of that inheritance, and Esau was, you know, <coughs> in his own strength, being a hunter, and I can provide. And so the idea that in his own strength, he didn't need the inheritance mm-hmm. and didn't see the value like the talent. And Jacob's like, it's whatever, hey, you want a bowl, I'll do whatever you want. And But the whole time, Jacob is being conniving. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, you look at David's heart, a man after God's own heart, and yet he didn't walk the path, you know, like you're looking at. There's, it gets there, and then I think about last week's explanation, too. Lots of times we struggle with our walk. Am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? Am I, am I, am, you know, and then if we stop, it's not of this world. It's not the way the world would It's the opposite. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so because I have to be careful that I don't go, well, i got to do more, and then I'm getting on this road. That's your tendency to look at the scripture and say that, well, I, I'm, I'm going to read this through the world's eyes, and I'm going to have the same interpret. But again, everything that everything in the Bible is <laughs> is upended. Up is down. Down is up. And so when you read something like this, you have to look at through those spectacles. That what is what are, what are the spectacles of grace and mercy tell me this parable means? Not self-achievement, not self-righteousness, because that's that's what our tendency is. Our tendency is to want to do that. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of thinking about the metaphorical aspect of this with the talents being the gift of grace to the three individuals. And then does that also imply then that there is an element of free will there, that the third person literally decided well, to accept the gift? Big topic. <laughs> The, what, 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 I, what I want you to come away with here is that rather than focus on what the servant's decision was, okay, what the, the focal point 
of here is, is the master's work, what the master has done, okay? And it was the master that enabled the first two servants to propel them to, to, to do good things, to double the work. And so do we want to introduce an element of, well, it was up to the, the, uh, the, the third servants, his, his choice of free will to, to do that? Sure, you can put that in there. But this is the point we're trying to make. Did he freely make that decision to, 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 to go against the, the will of the master? Yeah, he did. What was stopping the first two servants from not doing that very same thing? What was it? It was a master. Because if, if, the, if those first two servants did according to their own desires and their own, they would have ended up just like the third one. So that's where we try and, 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 and understand what's being said here because that's the focal point of what Jesus is saying. It's, it's the work of the master. It's what he's done. Not the negative decision of, of the one, but the grace and mercy of the master that he laid upon servants one and two. No, that's a lot, and, and it's a, certainly a big discussion. And, oh, oh, Carolyn's here to save me. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think verse 29 uh, sums it up so well, because this is where, like, I think that we can get a little carried away with a parable as if it were a perfect analogy, and every piece of it right. is a perfect, you know, like has a, represents something entirely. But when Christ is summing it up, he says, for to everyone who has will more be given and who will have an abundance. Mm -hmm. Which is what we as Christians are to take away from this. That am I living as if there is limitless grace for me? That Christ is you know, inviting me into the life of abundance, not of possessions, but of Him. Right. right? Of Him, not His goodness and His, right. and his amazing gifts. Um, but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. So I think that there, that's where he draws this clear distinction that if we, have, if we have received any of his grace, there is more and more and more. That's right. And those who reject his grace at all don't have any. Right. Mm -hmm. kind of all, all or none. Yep. That takes about four minutes to get back to, uh, to the service. You have to go to the service. And also, again, can, is, are people free to join us out there if... if I don't mean we're going to be out there. Whatever y'all do is, is up to you, but we're going to be out there. Okay, so so who would like to join us in a? Or who would like to join us? Can I see a show of hands? We're taking RSVPs. Who would like to close us in prayer? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.